Mr. Anderson, welcome back. We missed you. You like what I've done with the place? It ends tonight. I know it does. I've seen it. That's why the rest of me is just going to enjoy the show. Because we already know that I'm the one that beats you. The machines are planning to destroy the human race once and for all. And only Neo, the one, can stop them. Listen as we talk about the opposite of Eric Cartman, the opera song that sounds like every other opera song, and a terrible deal between Luke Skywalker and the Emperor. Then we find out if the Matrix Revolutions stands the test of time. Time James and Alan have their say. Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut. Alan says as a father, blah blah. It's the test of time. James and Alan have their say. Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time. James and Alan have their say. Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Test of Time. My name is Alan Noah. I am here in the real world, not in the Matrix, with my pal, James Brief. Hey, how are you, Al? I assume it's the real you and not just some Matrix avatar kind of a situation. Well, um, that's up to you to decide. But um, if you were a simulation, wouldn't I also be a simulation? Presumably. I'm going to choose to believe that neither of us are a simulation. You know, I don't think that The Matrix would be able to produce nearly 300 episodes of The Test of Time. You listeners listening to this podcast disproves that you live in some kind of holographic uh, virtual reality universe. I think your logic is flawed, but I'm going to go with it anyway. All right. Let's just go with it. You know, this is The Test of Time podcast, Al. You, You know that? I did know that. Yeah, I think uh, I think the theme music would have clued in the listeners and the logo and the fact that they clicked on and everything. I think everyone knows that. Yeah. Yeah, they're clued in. We talk about older movies and see if they still stand up. But I stumbled across a really interesting article the other day. It's an article from 1997 from Wired Magazine. What's a magazine? Exactly. So the article is titled... 10 scenario spoilers and basically it's 10 things that could happen in the future that would be really bad and can bring apocalypses okay how many of them have we done i'm gonna guess all of them i'll just read you a couple of these things so it talks about the european union process breaks down okay and that Has happened, Brexit. It talks about Russia devolving into a kleptocracy that's basically run by a mafia goon and retreats into a quasi-communist nationalism that threatens Europe. Okay, happened. Um, New technologies uh, turn out to be a bust. They don't bring the expected productivity and happiness increases or the big economic boosts. Uh, I guess you could debate that one, but I think that's probably fair to say. I would say some people have gotten a lot of money, but I would say if you look for inflation, the average American is making less money, even though our GDP has gone way up. Right. And in terms of productivity, you're working more because you can't always be working. Another one here, tensions between China and the US escalate into a new Cold War. 
Eh, not that bad. Well, yet. tensions are definitely escalating. Yeah. Energy prices going through the roof, more escalation and pollution, oh, yeah. uh, rising crime and terrorism, um, major ecological crisis that caused the global climate change, uh, things like tsunamis and hurricanes. And you know, some of these things are obvious, like, yeah, hurricanes always going to come and make major problems. But there's a lot going on in the world right now. Like People will not necessarily be studying 1995 as a game-changing year, but this is a 1939 era in uh, human history. Um, yeah, that doesn't sound like a real feel-good article from 1997, and it's certainly not uh, particularly uplifting thinking about how many of those things have come true. Um, get it together, humanity? I don't know what to say. Like, yeah, it's a scary time. As a father, I worry about the world that uh, my children will inherit. Oh, I have no idea. And I don't think anything about the world because I don't have children. So, you know, I guess that would be what, what you're implying there. I think you read way too much into what I was saying. And uh, I think that revealed some truths about you, <laughs> I think, quite frankly, and less about me. But... You know what world has it worse than our modern world? The world in the Matrix Revolutions. That was a good segue. That is true. They do have it worse than anything in our world or even in the apocalypse of Wired magazine. That's right, because in this movie, the third Matrix movie, the war between humans and machines is coming to an end one way or another. The machines are preparing their final assault on Zion, which is the last human city, Agent Smith has become more powerful than either Neo or the machines can control because now Smith wants to destroy both worlds. So Neo makes a dangerous journey to the machine city and he aligns with them to destroy Smith and bring peace to both humans and the machines. And this movie came out six months after the last movie, uh, The Matrix Reloaded, which is weird. It's really weird that they would release both of these movies in the same calendar year I guess there was some strategy involved from Warner Brothers, but I feel like nowadays you would never do that. It was almost weird that they released uh, Infinity War and Endgame like one year apart. Usually you you want a bigger gap, but Marvel's doing their own thing and it's working for them. But two movies in the same franchise in one year like this, it's just bizarre. I would imagine they probably filmed some stuff together that they could save some money on it. Sure, but Back to the Future Part 2 and 3 did that. Those movies came out in 89 and 90. Yeah, six months apart. Oh, it was really only six yeah, months? Yeah, yeah. It was a, a you know holiday film, and then it was summer of 1990. Oh, okay. For some reason, I thought they were like a full year apart, maybe just because I'm remembering the years they came out. I guess it can be done. But this movie was a... Big hit when it came out, but not as big as Matrix Reloaded, right? Because people were kind of jaded after that one. Oh, it was a dramatic fall. I mean, just to remind you from last week, Matrix Reloaded opened at number one with $91.7 million. It made almost $500 million domestically and almost $750 million worldwide. 
This movie, The Matrix Revolutions, it opened on November 5th, 2003, and it opened at number one with only $48 million. So just about half of what its predecessor had made in its opening weekend. And it wound up making $288 million domestically and $427 million worldwide. So I actually think maybe it was smart uh, for them to release this five months later because if they release this, you know, four years later, like the first film to the second film, they might not have even made uh, $427 million worldwide. I think they kind of got a lot of people saying, hmm, maybe we didn't love the second film, but let's see what they do with this third one. I see what you're saying. I guess the counter argument would be that if you let that movie simmer a little bit, maybe people hate it at first, but then they watch it again and they kind of appreciate it more and they can find clues and subtext and they can ask questions about what the third movie will be and they can develop theories and they can sort of build up the anticipation. I could see that working to their advantage, but also it would have worked to their advantage if the second movie had just been a better movie. Uh, Perhaps, but you know, also coming out six months later, there's not much you could do about it. Sure, sure. So when we uh, start this film, it pretty much picks up right uh, from the uh, last film. Uh, Trinity, Seraph, and Morpheus, they go into the Matrix to see the Oracle. And they actually notice that this is a new Oracle. And she looks different. She claims to be the same Oracle. And I, I think as the audience, we're led to believe that she's the same Oracle. But do you know the real story behind this? Well, first off, it is the same Oracle. It's the same character. The woman who played her in the first two movies died which is almost surprising just because these two movies were filmed back to back. You might think that she died after the first one in that four-year gap between the first and the second and third, but she actually died while they were doing the second and third movies, and so they had to recast her. And then they make an in-universe explanation that based on the events of the second movie, she suffered, I believe they say it was at the hands of the uh, Merge Virginia, whatever guy, the Frenchman guy, because she did what she did. Now she's in a new shell, a new like human form. And we know that she's a computer program. So they kind of sort of yada yada it. So it kind of makes sense in the movie. Right. And she says this line that is just made for a trailer. She goes, Everything that has a beginning has an end. That is just a perfect line for the concluding chapter, or, you know, so we thought the concluding chapter to one of the biggest uh, trilogies of all time. Right, right. And that's a line that is echoed throughout this movie. And the reason that Morpheus goes to see the Oracle is, one, he always goes to see the Oracle. That's like his grand solution in all three of these movies. We need to go and speak to the Oracle. She'll tell us what to do. But also because at the end of the last movie, Neo is in a coma and Morpheus thinks that Neo is the one and he wants to save his friend. And the Oracle tells Morpheus that Neo is in this world in between the real world and the Matrix. And it is controlled by the train man. And you have to get the train man to release him. And the train man works for Merovingian, the Frenchman. Merovingian. Sure, what you said. Since when do you know how to pronounce things? That's weird. (laughs) Uh, But they have to go to see him in order to let the train man allow Neo to leave this place. Yeah, so they go to uh, Merovingian's uh, club, and first they go to the lobby of the club, and 
It's kind of a, a reshoot of the famous lobby scene from the first Matrix film, the lobby shootout scene. There's another uh, shootout with a bunch of people, and it's you know a lot of flips in the air, and it's really cool. But I remember thinking, I've seen this before. Right, and they fight their way through the club. This scene actually kind of made me think of uh, John Wick, like when he goes into the nightclub and starts shooting people up. But once they're inside the club, Morpheus and Trinity go up to the Frenchman and his beautiful wife, who's still with him, uh, Persephone, played by Monica Bellucci. It seemed like she was mad at him in the last movie and she was maybe going to leave him, but now she's back at his side. And these things take place like right back to back. So it's only been, I don't know, a day or two. I, I don't know exactly how time works in the Matrix, but relatively soon after we last saw them. And... The Frenchman basically says that he will only let Neo out of this limbo if they bring him the eyes of the Oracle. Because, hey, who wouldn't love to have the Oracle's power? I guess that's connected to her eyes? I don't know if he literally means her eyeballs. It seems to be what he's saying. But they're computer programs. Don't think about it. Whatever. But then Trinity says, I don't have time for this shit. And she pulls out guns. Everyone pulls guns on each other. And... Persephone tells her husband, the Frenchman, you better do what she says. She's in love. She'll do anything to save her lover. And then the Frenchman just relents, which fine, but it's also like kind of a weird thing to like bring these characters back and have him make this really strange demand of the Oracle's eyes. And that's all dropped really, really fast. I think I like the actor, maybe, and this character of the uh, Merovigian, but for some reason, it just doesn't pay off. Uh, I want there to be something else, just something uh, uh, je ne sais quoi, I guess, uh, that's missing here. Because he loves French so much? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Meanwhile, we see Neo in this bizarre place. He's at a train station. The name of the station is Mobile Avenue, which is an anagram for Limbo. Get it? Because he's in a limbo and it says mobile. I knew it was something, but I'm like, ah, I don't like mobile. Are they talking about because people used to call cell phones mobiles and uh, and they still do in Europe. Is that what they're going with? Because they use cell phones in the Matrix world. But now that you even tell me what it is, that's not that interesting. <laughs> no, no, it's not. But while Neo is there, he meets this family of programs. And we were talking last week about, isn't it weird that two programs would get married? And we were both saying that it was weird. But now it's even weirder because these two programs got married and had a kid. How does that work? And I mean, maybe I'm overanalyzing and maybe you're not supposed to think about that. But I was just like, I don't get it. Well, I think it means programs writing a program, which, which can happen. I would imagine two software that have their own unique Strings and functions can kind of make another unique way to make a combination of the two. I guess that's fair. And also within these movies, there are programs making programs. So I guess that does make sense. But then, you know, Morpheus and Trinity come and rescue him. And Neo goes to speak to the Oracle. And he's a little bit pissed about how come the Oracle never mentioned that there were other versions of the Matrix and there were other Neos and things like that. Like the architect caught him off guard when he told him all that. And the Oracle is kind of like, yeah, yeah, I told you what you needed to know. And that's all I'm ever going to tell you. And would you have believed me and all that stuff. But she also tells him that Smith is his opposite, which is a thing that 
I got to be honest, I hate. It's just one of those tropes where the bad guy is the opposite of the good guy. And that happens a lot in movies, but it really, really, really bugs me when it's called out specifically for the audience. Like, I can think of one example where it's maybe okay. Is it the one I'm thinking of? Maybe. Raiders of the Lost Ark? No. Oh, oh, Balak. Balak, yeah. Balak. Honestly, the reason I'm okay with that is probably because that's the first time I ever heard it, even though I'm sure it happened in movies before that. But it just kind of bugs me when they're like, you know, I'm a lot like you. Like, yeah, we know, we get it. The villain's like the hero, except there's one thing that's different. Yeah, 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 we get it. What was the one that you were thinking of? The one I was thinking of is one that was not explicitly uh, said ever, but I read about it in like a magazine or a website once, and I find it hysterical and it's totally true. Apparently, the creation of the character Butters Stotch, he was supposed to be the complete opposite of Eric Cartman in every way, which I find hysterical because he really is. Every choice that Eric Cartman would make, Butters would make the opposite choice. Interesting. No, I wasn't thinking about that because they never explicitly say that on the show, but I get it. I get what you're saying. Which is why Butters Cartman episodes are fantastic. Always the best. Uh, but after Neo talks with the Oracle, he leaves and then Smith comes in and visits the Oracle and does the thing that he does where he sticks his hand into a person, a program, whatever, and then takes it over. And then we assume he like has the Oracle's powers now. He can see the future just as she could, which is presumably bad news for Neo. Yeah, and he has this comically bad like villain laugh where he takes over the oracle he can feel he has these new powers listen to this clip here (laughs) listen hugo weaving is great and he chews the scenery and he's gonna make the most out of an evil laugh so all right well i'll give it to him meanwhile zion is still under imminent attack because The whole plot of the second movie was Morpheus was saying that Neo had to stop that attack from happening, but then they sent some ships and one of the ships detonated an EMP too early. And I thought that the Matrix Reloaded ended with Zion being destroyed like off camera. I think I missed a line of dialogue or something because that's not what happens. It was just the ships that were destroyed. But apparently like that imminent invasion that we were told about in the last movie is still an imminent invasion that we're now hearing about in this movie, which I found kind of weird and confusing. I agree. And I thought Zion had been destroyed and reloaded as well. Okay. Well, that makes me feel a little bit better. I was worried that like, maybe I just missed something or I zoned out for a minute of dialogue or something, but yeah, it wasn't really clear, but this accident that took out all of the humans ships There's only one survivor. It's this guy, Bane. And we know that it's really Smith, that Smith has hijacked this person in the real world. But these people, they don't know what happened. They don't know that it's Smith. They wouldn't suspect that it would be Smith because that's not a thing that's ever happened before. But they are still suspicious of Bane because everyone else has died. He's the only survivor. And he has these cuts on his arm that look self-inflicted, don't look like some injury that he would have sustained. And even though they're suspicious of him and they have every right to be suspicious of him, they don't like 
put him in a brig or lock him up or tie him down or really do anything. They kind of question him a little bit. And then the one guy in charge is like, hey, doctor, you go and see if you can get any more information out of him. And as soon as they're alone, Bane kills her. No, he basically confesses that he's there to kill them all and that he set off the EMP from the last film. Then he kills her. Right, sure. It's just really, really stupid that they just don't do anything with this guy that they all suspect. They're all talking about, like, we don't trust this guy, and yet they leave him alone and let him do whatever he wants. I know you don't watch Star Trek, but you know this reference? He has, like, the evil parallel universe goatee and they did that in uh, south park yes 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 why did they make everyone suspect him and then keep him alone it's really really sloppy writing or there's a scene missing that explains why they trusted him enough to just you know leave the doctor alone with him right but so now neo is saying that he needs to go to the machine city and he needs to take a ship and go And this is a controversial decision because Zion is really, really under imminent attack for real this time. And they don't want to send anyone away. But Niobe says that Neo can have the ship. Trinity is, of course, going to go with him. And they go off to the Machine City. They never really say what they're going to do. It's more of just like Neo saying he has to try something. And they're all like, we believe in you. You're the one. Sure, you can go. But Bane sneaks on their ship. He was on the other ship, but then he sneaks on theirs and he attacks Trinity and attacks Neo. And Neo doesn't get that it's Smith for like a really long time, even though the actor who's playing Bane is basically doing a Hugo Weaving impression. He sounds exactly like Smith. He's making all of these references that no one else would know but Smith. And Neo's like, who are you? (laughs) Like, Come on, you should be able to figure it out. Also, it's frustrating because we, the audience, know that it's Smith. So it's just like, get on with it. I agree. Uh, Exact same thought in that scene. But uh, Bane, during the fight, manages to blind Neo. And then uh, Neo is just able to kill Bane. And Trinity tends to Neo because now he's, he's blind. But he can still see anything that is related to the machines. Whereas in the first movie, like everything Matrix related had like that green kind of hue. Now Neo sees everything like as this orange light, but only anything mechanical. He can't see Trinity because she's a flesh and blood human, but he can see the machines. Meanwhile, this attack that we've been talking about for a movie and a half on Zion actually happens. And in The Matrix Reloaded, we saw these like large exoskeleton things that the guys in Zion have. And now we see a million of them and they do battle because these sentinels, that's what they call the machine squid-like things that attack. They start drilling through the outer wall of Zion and they come in and these giant exoskeleton things are firing at them. We see all of these different generals. We see the kid from the last movie and he's there and he just really wants to help out and he knows he's too young, but he doesn't care. He wants to do his part. We see Link's wife or girlfriend. Uh, She's there. She's fighting uh, for the cause too, as well as like a bunch of other characters who we don't really know. They're all in this battle too. I know we said this a lot last week. I felt like this battle sequence goes on way too damn long. 
especially considering the fact that it really revolves around these characters who we just don't know them that well. I didn't think this was too long. Um, We don't know any of these characters, so you don't feel bad when any of them die. The reloading sequence I thought was very exciting. It kind of reminded me of like Normandy Beach kind of things where those boats would just open up and you would just be in the action right away. And Mm -hmm. it was pretty exciting where they would open up the doors for their uh, artillery and they'd have to run out and immediately they're just in a war zone. I thought that was very well done. I thought there was a lot of tension here. Um, But the main problem is that I don't care about any of these characters because it's not the main people I know. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's just a lot of like machine guns and explosions and machines. And it looks cool, but I have to say I was getting bored watching this. After like minute 10, I was like, okay, I get it. Um, Meanwhile, Niobe is piloting her ship back to Zion because Neo took her ship to the machine city, but then she's piloting this other ship. And the only way they can get to Zion is through this really tight tube it's like a power line or something and no one can pilot it but she can because she's an amazing pilot and the odds are against them but she is able to pilot the ship back to zion and she has an emp apparently all of the emps that zion had are gone i guess they were all destroyed when bane slash smith like blew them up on purpose an emp electromagnetic pulse will destroy all electronic machinery that includes their emps Oh, so an EMP will destroy other EMPs. Yeah, an EMP is, a, is an electronic device itself. Gotcha. Okay, but then my other question is, why did they send all of their EMPs out of Zion and not leave a couple in Zion as a last resort? The answer is, it was an incredibly stupid decision. I would not say that's a plot hole, though, because people make incredibly stupid military decisions all the time, and I could chalk that up to something stupid they would do. I guess so, but Locke really does seem to be good at this, or at least we're told that he's really good at it, and I don't understand any of the strategy in this movie and in Matrix Reloaded, honestly, like... The whole plan is, well, the Sentinels are coming, the machines are coming, so Neo is going to go talk to the Oracle. Neo is going to go talk to the Architect. Neo is going to go talk to the Oracle again. Neo is going to go to the Machine City. Like, they have no strategy. There's no plan. Basically, what they're doing is defense. It would be nice if we understood what their offensive plan was. Do they have an offensive plan? What are they doing? I just don't get it. And I, I think that also hurt this battle scene where I just didn't understand what the good guys were doing, what their intentions were. Why are they so terrible at all of this military strategy? Whatever. The important thing is that Niobe does make it back with the EMP. They blow it. They are able to destroy all of these Sentinels and they're like, woohoo, we're heroes. They reuse a line from Star Wars and it's been done in a million movies where Morpheus says to Niobe, you did it. And then she says, no, we did it which makes me roll my eyes every time I hear it, except when I heard it in Star Wars, then it's fine. But then they think they're going to be heroes, but they're not because now they've destroyed their own defenses in Zion. So Locke is basically like, well, if I was a machines, I'd send every other machine I have here to kill us all. And now we have absolutely no defenses. Right. And uh, while Locke and the council are uh, 
berating them for, you know, your little battle victory may have cost us the war. Did you notice one of the council members, do you notice it's played by a gentleman named Cornell West? Do you know who he is? Yeah, I know who he is. I didn't see him there. Yeah, yeah. He's one of the council members. He's uh, he's an actor. Uh, he's also a uh, social activist. He's a Harvard professor. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you watch uh, Bill Maher's show, he's on that show a lot. But he totally has uh, a role on this council. I did not know that. That is very cool. Uh, Also, while all of this is happening, we don't see Neo at all. Like, he is presumably, you know, the main character of this movie. And it's not really, like, intercut of, like, while the battle is happening, Neo and Trinity are on their mission. It's really just focused on the battle. Neo is not on screen for a long time. Also, he wasn't on screen for a long time in the beginning of the movie while he was in a coma. Although I think they were doing a little bit of intercutting him in the train station while uh, everyone else was talking with the Frenchman. But whatever. No, you're right. It's a good point. It almost seems like you'd find one of these behind-the-scenes things like... Uh, Keanu Reeves and Lawrence Fishburne hated each other, so we had to write it where Neo and uh, Morpheus never share a scene in this film. You know, I think what they're going for is one of these Lord of the Rings, two towers, kind of like two concurrent stories that will diverge right when they need to later. But they don't really diverge. You mean converge. You mean they come together. What did I say? Diverge. I I mispronounced uh, diverge. You didn't mispronounce it. You just said the polar opposite. But I know what you mean. That's what happens when you're friends for 20 years and you host a podcast for five and a half years. You understand. Wait a second. We've known each other for 24 years, so we weren't friends for four of those? Uh, You know what you did. Anyway, uh, when we do finally get back to Neo, he and Trinity are going to the Machine City, which also apparently they explain like what the Machine City is in the Animatrix. You don't really need to know. It's not that important. I mean, it's what you think it looks like. It's basically a machine city. Yes. And they are attacked by these uh, sentinels as they're getting there. And Neo can do his hand stopping the real world machine things a little. But then they are like absolutely swarmed by them. And it's just too much. And they have to go up into the atmosphere. And they, they see the sun for the first time because... The atmosphere has been blacked out. They live like in the center of the planet. They've never seen the sun, but of course it's still there. And Trinity has this moment of seeing the sun and, oh, it's beautiful. But then they come crashing back down to Earth. And in that crash, Trinity is like impaled on several pieces of rebar. But um, she has enough time to have another death scene You might remember she had that great death scene in the last movie before Neo brought her back. This time, Neo doesn't bring her back. He can't bring her back. But in the first movie, Neo died. In the second movie, Trinity died. In the third movie, Trinity dies again. And while she's saying her goodbye to Neo this time, she even refers back to what she said the last time she died to Neo. It's like you just keep rehashing the same things, and it's just really frustrating. Um, I wouldn't use the word frustrating. I I would just say that it wasn't the ending she deserved. I I just thought Trinity would go out with maybe even the way she almost went out in Matrix Reloaded. Like, she sacrifices herself for Neo. I think it would have suited it better because... Because her death was, it didn't really make much of an impact. You're right. I mean, it's basically just because Neo needs to go on this last leg of his journey alone. And you're right. Trinity is such a badass. 
the first two movies in this franchise start with her doing totally badass stuff. And now she just dies in like a crash and rebar is sticking out of her abdomen. It is a very anticlimactic death for this badass character. Yeah, and so now with the death of Trinity, uh, Neo, he's in the Machine City, and the machines seem to recognize him, so they don't kill him, but they will bring him to the the main machine, the main core, the deus ex machina, which I, I think is kind of funny. Literally, yeah. the, the ghost in the machine. It's this... Um, Kind of like a big sun-looking thing that kind of makes its face appear with, like, little nanobots. And yeah. and it basically has a conversation with Neo about, like, we will destroy you. But Neo's like, well, Smith is going to destroy you and me because you can't control him anymore. And they basically come to a conclusion that we should team up against Smith. Right. Neo makes a steal of, I will stop Smith you need me. And the deus ex machina is like, I don't need anything. And Neo says, if that's true, then kill me. But I think you do need me. And then the deus ex machina basically admits that it does need his help and says, well, what do you want in return? And Neo says, peace. So the machine agrees and allows Neo to plug into the matrix. And in the matrix, Neo confronts Smith. Smith is now everybody. He's not just Tens, dozens, hundreds, thousands of Smiths. Smith is everyone in the Matrix. He has completely taken over every person there. And because he took over the Oracle, he knows what's going to happen in this fight. He knows that he's going to win. He's bragging about it. And so he says, all the rest of me, they're just going to watch. It's not going to be like the, the scene in The Matrix Reloaded where it's one Neo against many, many Smiths. All of the other Smiths are going to be there as bystanders, and Neo is going to fight the one true Smith, the original Smith. Yeah, and this scene is sometimes called uh, the big burly brawl, the super burly brawl. The original burly brawl was him versus all of the Smiths in the second movie. So this is a super burly brawl. Ah, okay. All right. I didn't realize there was a distinct difference. But this is what people were kind of playing up, and... It's an epic score. I mean, you're familiar with the opera, the famous opera, uh, Carmina Burana? Totally. I listen to Carmina Burana every day. It's the first thing I listen to in the morning. It's the last thing I listen to at night. No, what the hell are you talking about? Opera? You, you know it. It's, it's this one. So it's that opera song that sounds like all the other opera songs, I assume. <laughs> you uncultured swine. <laughs> this score is very epic opera like that. Like there is all of this Latin or Italian going on in the background. You know, it kind of has that uh, duel of the fates, uh, you know, from Star Wars. It's a really good song for a kind of an epic brawl like this. I, I think it's, it works really well. Sure. There's the obligatory shot where Neo does like the come here hand motion that Morpheus did to him. And then Neo did to Smith back in the first movie. And they've done it a bunch of times in the franchise. And this is going to be the last time. I wonder if they'll do it in the new Matrix Resurrections. Probably. Uh, but they're beating the crap out of each other. But, you know, it's kind of a standstill 
And Smith doesn't really understand what's happening because he's supposed to win. He's foreseen this. And then Neo kind of like seems to give up and allows Smith to do the thing that he does where he sticks his hand in and then, you know, takes over, which is what he did to the Oracle before. But now he does it to Neo and Neo lets it happen. And then when Smith takes over Neo, who is connected to the main hub of the machines, the machines are able to destroy Smith from the inside. That's what Neo's plan was, and it works. You know, I didn't pick that up when I watched this. I mean, I I saw like a surge of light from Neo. I didn't really get that it was the machines doing it. I thought maybe this is a new power from Neo. It's a little anticlimactic. It's like, oh, what, they put like a little computer virus? It's like they're doing the Independence Day thing. At least in the Matrix 1, when they kind of quote-unquote blew up Smith, it was a world-bending revelation, and he's able to realize, ah, this is all just a fantasy, so there is no spoon. There is no Agent Smith or bullets, and I can go right through him. This one was just kind of like, oh, okay, the machines upload a virus. Eh, I thought it was fairly clear. I mean, like, you see Neo connected with the Deus Ex Machina and, like, the lights going through him. I got it. I understood what was happening. And then you sort of get, like, oh, that's why Neo allowed Smith to stick his hand into him because that's what he was thinking of. But that works. Smith is destroyed. And because Neo held up his end of the bargain— the machines hold up their end of the bargain and they grant peace. And all of the sentinels that were attacking Zion, you know, the next wave that was going to completely decimate them because now they don't have any EMPs and everyone's just huddled together in the temple waiting to die. Well, now the sentinels that are there just leave. They just pick up and go home. And it has killed Neo. Neo is dead. But, uh, you know, he got the peace for Zion that he wanted. We see the Oracle, and she's talking with the little girl from the opening of the movie, the daughter of those two programs, and we see that they have rebooted the Matrix. This was the thing that the architect was talking about, that the Matrix needs to be rebooted every now and again, and the architect and the Oracle are talking to each other. The architect says, how long do you think this piece will last? And the Oracle says, as long as it can, as long as it needs to. And then the Oracle questions him and says, you'll keep your word, right? And the architect says, what do you think I am, a human? Which I appreciated that line because I was thinking that after Neo is killed and destroys all the Smiths, the machines could still kill everyone in Zion. Like, why does the machine have to keep their word? They don't. They absolutely could just keep killing the people. And I appreciated this line because I was like, if a program is supposed to do something, it's going to do it. You know who's duplicitous and sneaky and will go back on their word? Humans. That's a human thing to do. But then after I watched the movie and I was doing some research about the Animatrix, and the Animatrix is canonical, by the way, according to the Wachowskis and in this universe, everything in the Animatrix does really happen and is a real part of the story. Apparently, they did go back on their word when the machine-human war was ending. The machines agreed to a truce with the humans and then blew up a nuclear bomb in New York City. Well, I would imagine that the machines realized that 
Smith is going to come back. What we've been doing is not working because now we have programs that we can't control. So we might need uh, the one. We might need a Neo again. I have no idea what happens in the fourth Matrix, but uh, maybe there's a reason he needs to come back. That is a theory that in the next Matrix movie, it's the seventh Neo. But yeah, I could see that they would still need a the one and everything, but they don't need all of those people in Zion. That's true. I think he could have killed them if he wanted to. But speaking of the fourth one, the little girl asked the Oracle, do you think we'll ever see Neo again? And she says, I suspect we will. So it does leave the door open for this movie that is now coming out. I read this on the IMDb trivia, the bench that the Oracle is sitting on. It has like one of those little like plaques, you know, like in memory of, and it says in memory of Thomas Anderson. I did not see that, but I think that's kind of a a cute little wink to the first movie. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. I like that. But now we have come to the end of the Matrix trilogy. You said the first one stood the test of time, Al. You said the second one definitely did not stand the test of time. We're one to one. Where do the scales tip, Al? The Matrix Revolutions. Does it stand the test of time? You know, this movie is definitely better than The Matrix Reloaded. No question. It is an improvement, for sure. That said, these two movies could have been one movie. We could have even done one podcast episode about both of these movies, to be honest. I mean, it really is one story. And it does bother me that I really don't understand, like, what the human's plan is in this movie or Reloaded. I don't get what they're going for. Here's why I think it bothers me. When you watch the first Matrix... And that movie ended. You didn't know that there was going to be a sequel. You assumed that there would be. When you found out that there were two sequels coming out and the trilogy will will tell the full story, wouldn't you have imagined that the third movie would have ended with Neo rescuing everybody, saving humanity, all of those people in the pods, they're all going to be freed, right? Like, that's what you would imagine. That's what I would have thought, right? Yeah, and they mentioned something about how the architect says that those that desire to be freed will be freed. That That's kind of a cryptic thing because the people don't know they're in the Matrix. But some do. And that's the thing with Neo is that, like, he sort of has this feeling that life is empty and there's something more. And those kinds of people, the most special people, will find their way out of the Matrix. But the fact that this movie ends with the machines and the humans coexisting in some kind of weird, stable peace, it's really anticlimactic. And I think it really, really bothered me in 2003. Imagine the end of Return of the Jedi where the Emperor says, okay, Luke, here's what's going to happen. The Empire is going to keep going. The Rebels will keep going. By the way, we're going to need to control, I'm going to say, 98% of the galaxy. Is that cool? And Luke's like, yep, deal. See you later. Give us Tatooine. We're good. Right? Like, that would be horribly anticlimactic. And I think that the ending of this movie pissed a lot of people off for that reason, myself very much included. I was thinking about it again, though, today. And the more I was thinking about it, the more I actually kind of like this ending, because one, it does subvert expectations. It doesn't do what you expect, which I can appreciate now more than I guess I could in 2003. Also, When you think about it in terms of everything the architect said and everything the Frenchman said and everything the Oracle has said about free will and choice and people needing purpose and all of these like 
endless like diatribes and this like pretentious pontificating over and over again in these last two movies. And even that scene in The Matrix Reloaded where the councilman is talking about how people need the machines and the machines need the people and they're codependent on each other. Maybe this is just how this story has to end. The idea of humanity being free, it's not gonna fucking happen. If humanity was free, if the, all the machines did die, well then people could come out of Zion and what are they gonna do? They're gonna make new machines again. Like maybe the people who can get out of the matrix are the ones who deserve to get out of the matrix. And maybe the people who stay there deserve to? Like maybe that's what the movie is saying, that humans and machines are gonna have this complicated relationship forever. And if that's what the Wachowskis were trying to say, they kinda were maybe right? I mean, like look at our lives now, we depend on machines. People say social media is evil, Facebook's evil, but do most of those people delete it? No. Like we have this symbiotic relationship with AI and maybe that's the movie's point. I don't know if that's the movie's point. That was just sort of the way I interpreted it. If that is what the Wachowskis were trying to say, I think that's very cool. But this movie is still not that good. It doesn't really tie those pieces together. It doesn't do a good job of tying A to B to C. I don't really understand what the hell Smith is doing. I don't really understand a lot of the mechanics of who these characters are and what's going on and the battle for Zion it goes on too long. And there's just more endless talking, more fighting with Smith. How many fights with Smith have we seen between Neo and Smith? Like six in this trilogy? Too many. Too many. They go on too long. I was bored. I got to say, I was bored getting through this movie. I think that Unfortunately, even with its cool ideas and concepts, this movie does not stand the test of time. What do you think, James? Yeah, I think you had a real fascinating take on the ending about how it's uh, not the ending uh, that would close a franchise cleanly. Well, I agree with you on the fact that this movie is better than I remembered it being. Um, it was better this time. And I agree with you also that it is just way too long for certain parts. I mean, the super burly brawl, it's just too long. Yeah. It doesn't need to be that long. And it's not great. Actually, I think my favorite fight in these last two films was actually the one we saw in Reloaded. I like that one better, just in the little courtyard where they're fighting with a little bow and stick. I thought that was a little more grounded, and this one was a little more supernatural, which wasn't as fun. Because I like the kung fu uh, fights. I don't really like the superhero fights, at least in this world. Uh, Niobe, who I think is a real badass character. I, I like her as a character. I didn't really love the character's role in this uh, trilogy. But do you know who's originally cast to play her? Aaliyah. Yeah, yeah, the late Aaliyah. People don't remember. She was a R&B singer who, who had starred in a few films. And she was really up and coming. And I, get, I really see that she could have played this role well. But, you know, the real problem I have with this trilogy is the same problem I have with Star Wars Episode 7, 8, 9. The problem with these things is that there was no plan from the beginning. It really seems like the things that happen in The Matrix 2 and 3 are very separate from what happens in, in Matrix 1. Yeah. I think that had Matrix 2 and 3 been its own movie, its own universe, I think it's a pretty cool film. It's kind of a futuristic sort of a war between humans and machines. But I just happen to think that episode one here, The Matrix 1, 
really is a totally different film. I don't think Matrix 2 and 3 work as The Matrix 1 Part 2 and 3. It just doesn't continue that. I wish that Niobe was introduced earlier. I, I wish that uh, we knew who the kid was and maybe he was Mouse's brother. There was another Mouse kind of kid and we knew him the whole time. I just cared so little about any character that wasn't Morpheus, Trinity, or Neo. Yeah. It's such an amazing open world that they presented in the first one. And I, I think the Wachowskis made a beautiful second two films. The story overall is pretty cool, but it, it needed a better screenplay, a better editing, uh, someone who's willing to chop these fight scenes down to you know under 10 minutes. And I'd say The Matrix Revolutions does not stand the test of time. What I find interesting is... Will the Matrix Resurrections do something that perhaps retroactively makes me like these two films better? We'll have to see. But uh, I doubt there's anything in The Matrix 4 that was specifically planted in Matrix 1, 2, and 3 that they were just waiting to tell us about. So, you know, they might get lucky with it with a good Matrix 4, but I just think they, they kind of pigeonholed themselves with the first one by not, unfortunately, not having the seeds that, that were the second two films that, to me, just seemed disconnected from the first. Yeah, I can't argue with any of that. Are you planning to watch the new Matrix, The Matrix Resurrections? Oh, absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. Um, I might even go in a theater. Um, If you don't want to go to opening night, fine. But if you go a couple weeks later, it's probably dead on a Saturday afternoon. I mean, I saw No Time to Die with my stepdad on a random Tuesday afternoon and the theater was basically empty. Um, I will not pay money to see this movie. Well, I mean, I am paying money for HBO Max. I would not pay anything additional for this, but I could definitely see one day over a, a holiday break at the end of the year of just, ah, I'm just going to jump on the treadmill and go on a nice long run. Eh, I'll fire up uh, Matrix. Why not? And watch it. I'm not dying to, I'm not itching to, but I will. But that's going to do it for us this week. Next week, enough of all this Matrix stuff. We're going to get into the Christmas spirit with a Christmas story. It's on every year, like for 24 hours, I think, in a row on TBS, TNT, one of those channels. I saw that movie a million times as a kid. I'm guessing you did too, even as a Jewish kid. Oh, yeah, yeah. This was one of those films that uh, I saw a bunch as a kid. But we haven't done it on the podcast. And next week it's Christmas. Let's talk about a Christmas story. I'm really excited to rewatch that movie for the gazillionth time. Until then, we want to hear from you at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Tell us your thoughts about The Matrix, The Matrix sequels, about Neo Smith, The Frenchman, all of it. We want to hear your thoughts. And uh, we'll see you next time, everybody. Goodbye. Bye.